0: Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Professor John Joseph about his biography of Ferdinand de Saussure. When John Joseph started looking into who Ferdinand de Saussure really was, he found only scattered information, and as a result he ended up having to write the book that he himself had wanted to read. The result is a detailed but nevertheless readable account of the life and works of one of the most respected figures in the history of linguistics. In this interview, we discuss some of the questions that arise in connection with Saussure his major intellectual influences, his remarkable lack of publications during his adult life, the originality and historical antecedents of some of his central ideas, and Calvinist linguistics. John, just to start off with, what brought you to write this book? In other words, why Ferdinand de Saussure and why you?
1: Well... um... When I was about 19 years old, I was studying uh, linguistics and particularly I was going into romance linguistics and we were given Socio's course in general linguistics to read. And uh, I found it a, a very interesting book, but difficult to understand in many places. And for me to try to comprehend someone's ideas better, it's helpful to know where they're coming from. So I went to look for some Information on Saussure and found that there was really very little. There was a, a small potted biography, uh, well done by Tullio De Mauro in the French uh, edition of the course in general linguistics, uh, and that was about it. So I waited uh, from that time for quite a few years, figuring that eventually somebody was going to publish a biography of Ferdinand Saussure. It's such an important figure recognized as founding figure of linguistics but beyond that the whole area referred to as structuralism and and beyond that to post-structuralism and really it's had an impact in so many fields it seemed eventually somebody would write a biography of him and nobody ever did and so finally I was complaining about this uh, around about 2004 I think to my wife and she said to me you know if you want to read a biography of Saussure, you're going to have to be the one who writes it. And I said to her, you know, I think you're right. So I applied to the Leverhulme Trust, uh, who kindly gave me a major research fellowship. And around that time, it was just the right time, too, because... An enormous trove of Socios papers had been given uh, by his descendants to the uh, Bibliothèque Publique and Universitaire, as it was then, it's now the Bibliothèque de Genève in Geneva. And it took them several years to get those papers sorted and made available. So they became available just at the time that my fellowship started. And that really made it possible to write a biography in the true sense which I take to be writing a person into life because uh, prior to the existence of all those papers including a lot of personal material as well as uh, notes on linguistic matters we we really didn't have a good idea of the man and now we had a lot of material that made it possible to understand him more fully. Hmm.
0: This man, Ferdinand, wasn't the first academic in his family, right? Wasn't the first scientist. How do you think those ancestors of his played into who he became?
1: They were inseparable from who he became, and this is something that I had to really get to grips with myself to understand the culture in which he was raised, uh, where, uh, in particular, one ancestor, uh, Horace Benedict de Saussure, was held up. He he had been the glory of Geneva at the end of the eighteenth century when he died, and his fame continued on through the Napoleonic period and then had a rather abrupt eclipse at the end of the Napoleonic period. But uh, nevertheless he was still held up as the great scholar of the family. To this day there is in in Paris a uh, Rue de Saussure, and that's named for Horace Benedict, not for Ferdinand. So This, I think, is difficult for uh, a a lot of us to to understand. We expect when we read a biography that it's going to start with the birth of the main subject and so on. But that would be untrue to him because he actually, uh, his his life began already a couple of centuries earlier. And he was uh, made very aware every day of this family culture of scientific achievement of which he was expected to be a part
0: so here in the UK, we're coming up to the Ref Twenty Fourteen, and uh, there's a sort of publish or perish element to that. But Ferdinand was not much of a publisher, right? I mean, how do you think okay. he would have got on in the modern environment?
1: Well, uh, I—that's uh, a very good question, and I really don't know. Uh, it's any question, any answer to that question is going to be anachronistic in some way or another. Of course, I'd like to think that he would have adapted and. Uh, Done what he had to do to get uh, his four four star publications. But uh, one has to realize that he didn't have his university career uh, for a living. In fact, as professor at the University of uh, Geneva in the early years of his teaching there, I, I've seen his wife's household account books. That his salary, annual salary, as professor in the University of Geneva just about covered the family's butcher bill. Mm. So he was doing it out of this sense of public service and family service to the Republic of Geneva, uh, which had given his family refuge uh, in the 15th, 16th century at the time of the persecution of Protestants in France and so on. So it was out of a sense of duty that he was teaching it all. So it wasn't the case that he would have worried, fretted about uh, earning his, his crust, as the French say. However, he was very keenly aware of how little he had published, and he remarked about this uh, in letters to friends and so on. There there was so much. He had all these manuscripts uncompleted sitting around in his office, and uh, he he had an inability to bring them up to the standard that he himself imposed on, on himself. He was a perfectionist in the worst sense of the word. He couldn't complete a project to his own satisfaction. And others were uh, pushing him. Antoine Meillet, a very important French linguist of the early 20th century, who had been Saussure's student, uh, urged him to publish material on uh, anagrams that he had discovered in ancient poetry. And Saussure just felt he hadn't proved it. He was determined either to prove it and make it solid or not publish it at all. In the end, he decided not to publish anything at all. So... He had extremely high standards. One would like to think that Ref Twenty Fourteen would be, uh, you know, have recognition of such high standards. Um, but uh, I'd better not comment any further on that.
0: So, who do you think were the biggest influences on Saussure's work? He was taught in such a time of excitement, really, with the, the neogrammarians and with Whitney in the U.S. Um, who do you think were the, the really key pieces that fed into his own production?
1: By his own account, Whitney, William Dwight Whitney, the American linguist, was very, very important. Whitney also was recognized as important by the neo-grammarians. He had, he had gone over and studied in Germany as well, so he he shared many of their precepts, but he thought things through more fully in a way than, than they did, and was not afraid to raise some of the Questions and, and uh, what uh, what were called uh, antinomies, you know, logical paradoxes that considerations of language uh, brought up. So Whitney was was very important for him. He denied that he was influenced at all by the neo grammarians. He claimed that he went to the University of Leipzig. Uh, so claimed that he went to the University of Leipzig uh, at the age of eighteen. Hardly ever attended any lectures, but started immediately. On writing his memoir, uh, the memoir on the primitive uh, vowel system of of Indo-European, sorry, on the vowel system of the primitive Indo-European languages, Uh, some combination of that is the correct title of the the English translation book, and um, and and that uh, he was aware that uh, his professors, his younger teachers, particularly uh, Karl Brugmann and um, uh, Osthoff, were. On the same track as he was, and he was determined to publish his system before they could arrive at the same ideas, so he claimed later on in drafts that he wrote of of memoirs at the time he never he never published them he never showed these drafts to anyone, but he claimed in them that really he hadn't learned anything from them. He had arrived fully formed at leipzig and and so that 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 really that was not an influence however, however. Among those papers donated by his family in 1996 to the library in Geneva are his student notebooks from Leipzig, and if you read them, you see that uh, he didn't remember exactly correctly because, in fact, he had been quite an assiduous student. He had attended the lectures, he had taken notes, and the lectures had been on things very central to what he was thinking about and writing about, so it's really hard to accept at face value the story he was trying to perhaps persuade himself of later on that uh, they had not influenced him. The The problem was that uh, there were charges and counter charges of plagiarism that arose when he published his memoirs. His, his uh, teachers at Leipzig felt that he had not adequately acknowledged their ideas. He, for his part, felt that they went on to take his original ideas and repeat them in his own in their own work without attribution to him. So it's hard now to untangle who the influences really were. Uh, there's one other person that uh, had an important impact on him and that we lost track of in the history of linguistics because uh, this person is largely forgotten today. His name was Adolphe Pictet, and the reason he was important is that He was uh, the only really important linguist that Geneva produced in the mid-19th century. Uh, He wrote two volumes on um, Indo-European origins. And uh, he put forward, he he tried to reconstruct the original Indo-European culture on the basis of the later Indo-European languages. And uh, it's, it's quite a fascinating book. And it was reading this book that really sparked the young Saussure's interest in language and linguistics and set him on that trail. And, uh, he was, Piquet was also a member of, uh, Saussure's family circle. They were, uh, the two families were closely interrelated. To this day, Félion de Saussure's uh, great-grandson is president of the Piquet Bank, which is the largest privately owned bank in the world, uh, in Geneva. So, um, the, uh, th- that impact is also very important. So Piquet, the person who really sparked off uh, his interest, the neo-grammarians with whom he studied, although he later denied their impact on him, and Whitney, William Dwight Whitney, who really gave him a lot of insight into philosophical questions behind linguistic analysis. Thanks. So
0: from the book, it seems like Geneva as a place had a massive influence on who he was and what he ended up doing. Could you give us some idea of, of what Geneva was like in those days?
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's not changed that much. I must say I was uh, invited on the 27th of February to give a lecture to the uh, Institut National Genevois, the, the Genovese National Institute, marking the centenary of Saussure's death. Now, it seems strange that uh, Geneva has a national institute, and the nation in question is not Switzerland. The nation in question is the Republic of Geneva, which it still is to this day. It's the Republic and Canton of Geneva. And uh, the Genevese think of themselves as citizens of, of the Republic of Geneva. So this is how he was brought up, thinking of himself. And also of Geneva, as, as being the center of the world in many respects, it is still, you know, the, the, the international city, par excellence, we still wage war on the basis of the Geneva Conventions. The International Red Cross was founded there. The UN has uh, its uh, s- subsidiary headquarters there and so on. So it really is a unique city. And someone growing up, Genevese in Geneva, would not think of himself as French, uh, which it's always been difficult for... Uh, French linguists tend to think of Saussure as one of them, but he wasn't. He, nor did he think of himself as German. He was not bilingual. His family were not bilingual. He could speak and understand German, but it was, it was quite stilted. Uh, people in Geneva actually tended to trace their cultural affiliation more to Britain. And this was because of the Protestant thing. Calvin, of course, in Geneva, John Knox in Edinburgh and so on. Uh, and Saussure's uh, family background was partly uh, English as well. So, uh, if anything, he saw his affiliations as being toward the Anglophone world uh, in cultural terms and not to the Francophone world. That, uh, things changed a little bit with the Franco-Prussian War. That created a bit more sympathy uh, among the Genovese toward um, France. But in order to understand Saussure, I think you do have to Appreciate the fact that uh, his cultural background was as a Genovese people who see themselves as neutral, who see themselves as Calvinist, that is, therefore, not with, you know, without hierarchies in theory, in principle. In fact, in Geneva, there is an aristocracy and there is a middle class and there is a working class, but they don't think of it that way. And in some ways, I think that carries over into his uh, conception of the language system where all elements are on a par with one another. There aren't the sorts of hierarchies of, you know, markedness and so on that um, many other conceptions of language uh, rely upon. So this is Calvinist linguistics. Uh, I I hesitate to say that. (laughs) I think this needs a lot more work to to make it absolutely convincing. But yeah, I do think so. I, I think that there is something there. Uh, that determination, if if every day of your life in school, you're brought up with, you know, Calvinist sermons and so on, which stress the fact that every human being is equal before God, that there is no hierarchy of, of bishops and priests and so on, that everyone has a direct relationship to everyone else and so on. It's going to be quite Easy for you to, to imagine a language system in the same way, with every element in the system being a, a pure value created by its difference from every other system. Nothing preordained, if you like. So something you've already mentioned
0: is Saussure's own writings about his own past, mm. his souvenir. And um, you suggest that he's not always a particularly reliable historian of himself.
1: Yes. Well, in the long run, he is very reliable because he just uh he never showed any of this to anybody but i mean going through the papers i found 6 7 versions of uh you know drafts of these memoirs and in each one there are differences in detail he pushes dates further and further back for events that are supposed to have happened and that um have an impact on questions such as uh, whether he was influenced by the neo-grammarians and so on. The best you can expect from a historian is that they don't, they don't tell lies. And uh, he didn't, he never showed these documents to anyone. He stuck them away in a drawer and that was because, you know, as Calvinists, you just did not throw anything away. That's why we have these 12,000 sheets of paper that I've ruined my eyesight uh, going through in Geneva, mm-hmm. because if nothing else, you could keep them in cupboard and it would help insulate uh, the orangerie. Mm. So he wrote these things up. He saw that none of, them, he couldn't, none of them persuaded him. And so in the end, he kept them private. But one version then, 50 years after his death, was uh, published by a scholar. And and so we had that as seemingly the one single and authoritative version of his early years. And it it really took the discovery of these alternate versions to to call that into question. So do you
0: think Saussure would have been unhappy with the publication of some of his work
1: after his death? Well, uh, let's put it this way. He couldn't have published it himself. We know that. He wanted to publish a book on general. He, he tried to write a book on general linguistics already really in the early 1880s. And several times throughout his life, you, you find drafts of a book that would have been a book on general linguistics. And he couldn't do it satisfactorily. As he said, at one point, every single term needs to be reinvented from the ground up. And this is what you see him doing over the three courses of lectures which he gave on general linguistics. He starts with the most basic terms, langue, langage, the two French words that cover the ground of the English word language. And then you have parole, sort of like speech, and you have discours, discourse, and so on. And these are not used in a systematic way in French, so he tried to sort out a systematic way in which they could be used for linguistics. But so you start with the very words for language itself, where you have to do this terminological hygiene. And at every step of the way, it's the same thing. There's so much work to be done. It seemed overwhelming to him. So in the end, would would he have been happy to, uh, to see the published course in general linguistics, uh, which made him world famous, I expect he turned in his grave, you know, because uh, he, he would have certainly every every line, he would have seen things that would not have satisfied him, that would not have met his perfectionist standards. And so, in a sense, he, he had to die in order for this book to be put together and published by others. Turning to some of the big ideas, one of the biggest that's
0: always credited to Ferdinand de Saussure, is the idea of the arbitrariness of the linguistic sign. Uh, And yet you suggest in earlier chapters of the book that actually that idea had some precursors.
1: Yeah, I... um... I'm not sure that uh, it's true to say that that's always attributed to him. I, I think there is a general recognition that the arbitrariness of the linguistic sign is an ancient heritage. Certainly, goes back to uh, Stoic thought, where it's it's expressed quite clearly, and and even you know you have a version of it in uh, in Aristotle, and um, periodically through time. So what what exactly is meant by arbitrariness? Changes uh, with time, and uh, I, I've written uh, ab- about this as well. I've written a book called um, "Limiting the Arbitrary: Linguistic Naturalism and Its Opposites in Plato's Cratylus and Modern Theories of Language," in which I've traced ideas about arbitrariness and contrary ideas uh, from the ancient period through to the uh, well, the end of the twentieth century, because the book actually appeared in two thousand. So, but so, Sioux, if you like, reinvents the arbitrariness. At least he, he he defines it very specifically as the link between a sound pattern, or what he calls very late in one of his last lectures on general linguistics, he used the term signifier, signifiant, the link between that and the signified, a concept, and so he said that. Precise link, that's where the arbitrariness of the linguistic sign is located. And for other people, arbitrariness has to do with something else, with the relationship of the linguistic sign to things in the world. That's not what it means for Saussure. He would not pronounce on that because as far as he was concerned, that was not his business as a grammarian, as a, a philologist. His business was how does language work? internally. He considered it the business of philosophers or psychologists to deal with the relationship between a linguistic sign and its reference in the world, if there are any. So when we talk about arbitrariness in the context of Saussure, we have to make sure in in his terms we're talking about the signifier and the signified and how they relate to one another.
0: And is there a difference there between
1: European structuralism and American structuralism? Well, uh, first of all, it depends what you mean by American structuralism. I've I've also argued that I think actually uh, American structuralism is generally used to refer to people such as Sapir and Bloomfield. And in terms, if you look at it in terms of European structuralism, it's not clear that they're even structuralists at all. In terms of European structuralism, I have argued that American structuralism really begins with Chomsky. But let's put that aside do american linguists and european linguists on the whole differ in their approach to the arbitrariness of the linguistic sign in saussurean terms i don't think so i think you find people argue you do find people arguing about this particularly around the period 1939 to 1945 as it happens to be the period of the second world war there are arguments principally among European structuralists about the arbitrariness of the linguistic sign and what it means. Again, for, it doesn't really affect what Saussure says, although people don't always recognize that. They assume that the arbitrariness of linguistic sign must also involve the relationship between signs and things in the world or the way the world is structured. That's not really arbitrariness in Saussure's terms. So you will find disputes over the arbitrariness of linguistic signs. Um, but again, when it comes to Saussure's precise view, all of these linguists, the, uh, so Sapir, Bloomfield, and then in Europe, Jakobsen, Jomslev. uh in Britain, Joan, Daniel Jones, Firth is a bit more problematic, but in and in France, uh, Meillet and his students, and so on, all start from the Saussurian sign as the basis of their understanding of language, and and then modify it somewhat. Probably the person who attacks it most seriously is Roman Jakobson. Roman Jakobson, I think, is the one person of all those people who was not comfortable with the idea that the that every element in a language system has an equal status. And he's the one who really pushes the idea of markedness. That mm. some, some elements in the system are simpler, more basic, and others somehow are derived from them. And at the same time, he pushes the idea of iconicity. Now, again, I would argue that iconicity, uh, which is a term derived from purse rather than sussure, doesn't really affect the linguistic sign as such. It. Uh, it, it takes it beyond, and it does involve things in the world. But Jakobson, I think, had the biggest impact in shifting the discourse in that direction. Now, the difficulty is, you asked me about European linguists and American linguists. Roman Jakobson spent more than half his life in America. So, you know, he is often uh, cited as the archetypical European linguist, but I would put it to you that he has as good a claim to be an American linguist as a European one.
0: Mm. So another one of the big ideas that Saussure is usually credited with um, is the discovery or the invention, depending on how you want to put it, of the laryngeals, the Indo-European laryngeals. Could you outline the the intellectual heritage there?
1: Yes, that's a a very interesting one because... The, the it's again the the memoir uh, on the uh, sur le système primitif des voyelles dans les langues indo-européennes. So the uh, uh, memoir on the primitive system of vowels in the Indo-European languages is credited with being the work in which Socio postulates the existence of laryngeal consonants in Europe, Indo-European, what we would now call Proto-Indo-European. And if you read the book, you'll be you'll he's surprised to find that the word laryngeal does not occur in it. So uh, Sosio does not postulate the existence of any laryngeal consonants whatsoever, but he does deduce that systematically you you can explain the evolution of Indo-European vowels most efficiently if you think of the system in this way as having one basic vowel, one uh, vowel in primitive Indo-European, probably originally ah, but that raised toward a at some point. So, at a certain point in the history of Indo-European, you've got single vowel a. He symbolizes ah uh, one. Uh, and then that splits uh, into a and o. Um, now, this happens gradually. At first, is a kind of a nuancing of meaning. People start producing it before they perceive it, but eventually it becomes perceived. Once it's perceived, it starts to be used actually purposely to distinguish meanings of words. And at that point, you have a two-vowel system, A and O. This is also, that's the work where the word phoneme uh, is not introduced for the first time, but actually became popularized. So you can see the beginnings of phonemic theory with this idea of distinguishing between meanings. So, So Sio said, if we start from this system now with two vowels, a and o, symbolized as a1 and a2 with superscript numbers, and then we assume that there was always after it something he called the sonant coefficient. Now, the sonant coefficient is what we would usually think of as a semi semiconsonant, a semi-vowel, And there were a number of them possible, so there was... The, the usual ones, ya and wa, but also the liquids, so l, l and r could function. The nasals, m mm and n, mm, all could function as what he called sonant coefficients. And then he said, uh, I think there were, you know, there might have been two others corresponding to the vowels a and o. Now imagine a semi-vowel that is based on the vowel a, or semi-consonant based on the vowel a, just as the semi-consonant y is based on the vowel E. So we have I-Y. Uh, we have W. What happens when you do that with A? Ah? Ah. There's a kind of constriction in the throat. Well, that's where another linguist, Danish linguist called Hermann Müller, had the idea that that constriction in the throat would give you a laryngeal of some sort. It might be a, it might be a glottal stop, It might be something like the uh, laryngeal consonants of the Semitic languages. And Hermann Müller was particularly determined to prove original unity between Semitic and Indo-European. So this is why he jumped on the idea. He's the one who actually introduced the idea of these laryngeal consonants. But Saussure deserves credit because Saussure said, this is where you expect to have one of these unattested sonant coefficients. He identified correctly the places where they would occur, but it was Hermann Müller who identified them as laryngeal consonants. So they more or less jointly created this idea. Uh, nevertheless, when someone says Saussure postulated the laryngeal consonants of Proto-Indo-European, technically they owe you a pint.
0: <laughs> I'll make sure to call them up on that. Right, do. All right. Um, another phrase that is often associated with Saussure is the, the idea of a system And you suggest that that doesn't occur in in Saussure's writings
1: either. What you establish? I haven't found it. Uh, There are are still a lot of documents that the Saussure family hold, and um, there there undoubtedly exists correspondence that has not yet turned up. uh, And one day we might find a document where. Uh, Felian de Saussure describes language as a system in which tout se tient, everything holds everything else up, everything connects to everything else, but uh we haven 't found it yet uh It occurs in the writings of Antoine Meillet. when Meillet is talking about Saussure's idea of language again uh he was Saussure's student uh so it could well be a memory, an oral you know oral memory of something. Saussure so said in his teachings, he taught for 10 years in Paris. His, uh, he, w- he was employed to teach Old High German and Gothic, uh, substituting for Michel Breal, who had got an important administrative position. And um, so in the course of this teaching, so Sue, uh lectured quite a bit on, on general linguistic matters, too. And we do have some students' notes from some of these courses Again, we don't actually have uh, the Toussaintien turning up as such, but it may be something that he was remembered for saying and just didn't actually write down.
0: Another thing that's been found in his notes uh, is an apparently anti-Semitic letter.
1: Did he write that? Uh, well, um, this is, this is a, 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 a strange thing. The letter is a, it's, it's actually a draft of a letter Uh, written to a newspaper called La Libre Parole, which was a right-wing newspaper, French newspaper that was much read by uh, people in uh, the the military in France. They seem to have been its principal uh, readership. This was around the time of the Dreyfus Affair, and the Dreyfus Affair was seen as the uh, independence and authority of the French military uh, versus civilian control. And So Dreyfus, a Jewish officer, had been accused, falsely accused of of a crime, and he was found guilty by military courts. But then the civilian courts were saying, no, the military courts have got this wrong. and And the civilian government wanted to overrule the military courts. So everybody in the French military rallied together and said, no, you know, it doesn't matter if Dreyfus was innocent or not. That's just one man. The important thing is, upholding the independence of our military. Now, there was in Saussure's family, uh, immediate family, a member of the French military. This was his brother, uh, Leopold, who uh, wrote uh, uh, quite a lot. And and actually, he is very forthrightly racist in his views. And he was uh, constantly arguing with Ferdinand, his brother Ferdinand, and their father, uh, Henri, as well, who, uh, uh, of course, were not happy either. Henri was not happy that uh, Leopold had become a French citizen, uh, given up his Genovese citizenship and become French. Uh, He had to do that because he wanted to become a naval officer, and and, uh, Geneva doesn't have a navy. Uh, Switzerland doesn't have a navy. So he had to become French in order to fulfill his dream of becoming a naval officer. But this put him on the other side of the question when it came to Dreyfus, and and he was racist in his writings and so on, where Ferdinand is very avowedly non-racist. Ferdinand, whatever he says uh, when it comes to race, it's always like, you know, we, this doesn't directly impact on language, and we don't really know where races begin and end and so on. So there is this draft, unfinished draft of a letter that, as you say, is in a notebook that uh, is mostly blank. It also contains some notes of Ferdinand. Now, this has been used to uh, show that Ferdinand was a racist. It seems to me that uh, there are other explanations, one of which is that uh, and I, I, I've actually determined that Ferdinand and Leopold were both uh, staying at the family house to get home at that, in Geneva at that time. They were both there. Leopold is the one who subscribed to this newspaper, who would have read this article, written the response and so on, and written it in those terms. And nowhere in this notebook does it say property of Félion de Saussure or whatever. So uh, it may well be that this notebook was lying around, various members of the family used it. The fact is that Uh, Also, this draft of a letter is uh, written in a very different way from Saussure's notes in the same journal. So I'm very dubious. And I would say it's irresponsible for people to accuse Théliande de Saussure of anti-Semitism on the basis of an unsigned draft of a letter that happens to be among his papers. So that just could be a cuckoo in the nest. I, I believe so. Towards the end of his life,
0: then, Saussure's name got embroiled in a political struggle between, essentially between classes in Geneva, even though you've said earlier on that there weren't exactly classes in a, in a Calvinist system. Um, could you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yes, there. Th- that's right. I mean, this has always been the problem uh, in Geneva, and it came to a head at various times in, in history, And one of those times was in December, November and December of 1912, just a couple of months before Felion died. So uh, there was a movement by the governments to have business studies in the University of Geneva. Now, the professoriates had a lot of say in in, uh, how the university was run in those days. The government also had a lot of say, the Department of Public Instruction, and this Turned into a sort of battle between them, and the professoriate split. So the major, the majority of the professoriate, uh, including just about everybody in the faculty of arts, took the conservative view that business studies do not belong in a university. Business studies are perfect. Business is a necessary thing. Business studies are perfectly fine. But when somebody goes to university, it should be to study languages, literature, philosophy. Law, religion, art, and so on, and then they can go off and have their life in business. The Faculty of Social Sciences, uh, a more modern faculty, took a different view that uh, there was no reason why business studies should not be part of the university curriculum. So the professoriate split in that regard. And a uh, battle was a uh, way, the, so the battle extended then to the newspapers. And there was a more, if you like, conservative newspaper, the Journal de Genève, and a more radical newspaper called Le Genevois. And uh, so they started a battle on their front pages. And the newspaper, Le Genevois, started pilloring individual professors in the university who were on the more conservative side that said, we shouldn't have business studies in the university. Uh, And the first person they picked on was Ferdinand de Saussure. So there was his picture. And uh, they chose very well, really, because he he was vulnerable on a number of counts. He was the only professor in the university to have a de in his name, which is the mark of the aristocracy. He had published very little, as you pointed out. And he had very few students, uh, particularly in the, thing, in the subject where he had originally been appointed to teach Sanskrit. Uh, there were years in which he had one student, uh, two students. It was not unusual. So he was a ready target for this, and um, it seems to have hurt him. And he did die just a couple of months later. Whether there's a direct uh, influence there or not, I can't say. But certainly didn't raise his spirits any. The uh, other thing to note is that it's hard to know today who was right and who was wrong because, in a way, the the faculty of arts, those those professors uh, of the faculty of arts who wanted to keep uh, you know studies in the university pure, they were also in a way, keeping the doors closed to students from middle-class, lower-class backgrounds whose parents would only have let them go to university to do business studies. Their parents weren't going to send them to university to study Sanskrit, for God's sake. So, you know, maybe without thinking about it, they were keeping the university as a preserve for the children of the upper middle class and the aristocracy by saying, no, we must not have business studies in the university. And so uh, they were fighting a rearguard action against something that was inevitable. And indeed, after 1915, business studies began in the University of Geneva. Uh, I have to say, I'm all for universities being opened up to as many people as possible. Uh, but I'm not entirely sure that students go to university to do business studies? Shouldn't they really be doing languages and linguistics and all these other, you know, artier things? Uh, But so, you know, I'm a little conflicted there myself.
0: Moving perhaps then to uh, Saussure's influence on modern linguistics. One thing that later linguists have tended to blame or credit de Saussure with is the shift in focus from historical linguistics to a purely synchronic linguistics.
1: Is that blame or that credit fair? Um, no, definitely not. And it's, uh, it's, it's quite strange because all the work that he published was on diachronic linguistics. He never published anything uh, on synchronic linguistics. So it's, uh, again, one of those ironies of history that, that, that such is the case. Now, for him, he introduced the term diachrony. Into, uh, into linguistics, diachronic linguistics, and it was as uh, an alternative to historical linguistics, as it was being practiced by the neogrammarians, for instance. And what he objected to with neogrammarian practice is that they would look at a single vowel and trace its development from ancient times through the Middle Ages into the modern languages atomistically. And what Saussure says is, but, you know, elements of language don't have this sort of atomistic existence across time that the historical approach uh, implies. So what we need to do is look at the development of the whole system, or look at the development of a particular vowel, let's say, as an element of a system at time A, say uh, in Latin, time B, say, in Old French, time C, say, Middle French, and then uh, time D, Modern French. At each one of those four stages, each one of those represents what he called an état de langue, the state of the language. So you've got to look at the whole system at that time and understand the element as an element of that system in each of those points of time. Then when you can compare those various états de langue and the role of the elements in each of those états de langue, then you can do a proper diachronic study. So, diachronic study means a series of synchronic studies, a series of synchronic states being compared to understand properly the evolution of a language. You cannot abstract away a single element and pretend that you can follow its existence atomistically through time when it comes to um, synchronic analysis in the sense of the language as it is today, uh, he was all for that, but he didn't uh, invent it. Certainly, you know, the uh, uh, linguistic geography movement really is responsible for turning the attention of linguistics in a, in a in a serious way to the state of the language and dialects as they are now. Uh, so, Sue. So, was very impressed with linguistic geography. He lectured on linguistic geography. And he himself spent a lot of time, uh, especially in the period, late 1890s, first decade of the 20th century, he would often go on uh, jaunts in the hills uh, around Geneva and the Pays du Vaux, where he lived, and uh, go to villages to do dialect research, make notes on... He'd sit in the cafe and take notes on things he overheard, uh, sometimes speak to the people and so on. Uh, one occasion, this uh, resulted in him being arrested uh, on suspicion of spying. Uh, <laughs> but he, he, uh, he did get out of that. And uh, he, he wrote a letter of complaint to the local authority, uh, but kept his good humor about it at the same time. So what do you think is the most
0: important part of Saussure's legacy? What do you think is the most important thing that modern
1: linguistics has inherited from Saussure? I think all those things you've asked me about and that I've told you didn't really come from him because they they come from the course in general linguistics, this book that he did not write, but it had a a, a massive impact. uh, And and I don't think you'll find anybody uh, in the period um, 1920s uh, through the 1960s denying this. uh, It really gave a completely new start to the way people thought about uh, language from from the ground up. Uh, but I think, if I think about what's really original, his really original contribution, I think it lies in this. It's, it's conceiving of language as this parallel uh, sort of strip, if you like, on the one side signifiers, a system of signifiers, and on the other side a system of signifieds, linguistic concepts that are joined absolutely, joined arbitrarily, joined in a way that is uh, somehow immutable. And yet on each level, every signifier is uh, a value determined by its difference from every other signifier. Every signified is a value determined by its difference from every other signified. And it's particularly in the way those Two sets of values are linked together. That is, that's what's original in his conception of language. And I think that it's at the basis of everything that we continue to do today. Thanks. So
0: we're running short on time now. So just one more question, uh, and it's about your own work. Uh, Now this book is out on the shelves. What are you planning to work on next? Is Ferdinand de Saussure a closed book now, or, or is there more to discover?
1: Oh, there's there's uh, plenty more to discover on socio, and uh, there will never it will never be a closed book for sure. I uh, now that the book is out, I get uh, lots of invitations to talk at socio conferences of various kinds, and uh, so I have to come up with new things to say uh, about socio. It's not at all difficult, believe me. However, uh, at the same time, I, am, uh, I, I don't actually teach history of linguistics. I'm a professor of applied linguistics, and most of my work in this area has um, um, been on language and identity, language and politics in the last few years. So I, I uh, did a book in 2004 called Language and Identity that uh, I'm uh, working on uh, a second uh, edition of and, um, meanwhile, publishing uh, new Stuff in that in that general area. I also have put together regarding Socio though I've put together a four volume anthology of uh, uh, work on Socio for Routledge and uh, there's a series on uh, le- critical linguists uh, that will be coming out uh, in September and it got a new introduction that I've written. It's got the first English translation of the uh, souvenirs uh, that Socio wrote the the version that was published and uh, another uh, about uh, 80 papers in total, uh, all in, uh, in English. Uh, I thought originally that I would have to get a lot of material translated into English for this collection, but uh, was, was pleased to find as I looked through the literature that, uh, in fact, really, it's possible to put together a very, very comprehensive set of uh, articles on socio from the English language literature alone. It just happens to be very scattered, and even I wasn't aware of how far it reached uh, before putting this set together.
0: So it's going to be great to have all of that in one place. For now, I'll just say uh, thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: I've been talking to John Joseph of the University of Edinburgh about his book, Socio. This is George Walkden for New Books in Language, saying thank you very much for listening.